wonder sometimes whether I'm not living up to some kind of a potential. Not living up to your potential? That's a little disappointing, isn't it? It's, a, it's not a decision I made by accident. It's a decision I made with my eyes wide open. Is it possible to perform at your highest potential, yet still live a balanced life? Maybe, maybe not. But you better decide. All of our lives involve decisions and compromises and paths not taken. And if we agonize endlessly over over these forks in the road and wonder what would happen if I'd taken the other fork, in the end, it's not very productive. Are you living up to your potential as a Meister fan? Maybe or maybe not. If you haven't gotten a free audiobook using the link on our website, or if you haven't left us a five-star review on iTunes, you might not be living up to your potential. I'm totally kidding. But seriously, if you have a little extra time, please do that. Thanks. On to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Mountain Meister. On the other end, we have Dr. Raphael Slavinsky. He's a physics professor at Mount Royal University in Canada. Now, you're probably wondering, what is this guy doing on Mountain Meister? That's a great question. Uh, Supplemental to his physics professing is a climbing career that could probably stand on its own. He's completed first ascents in the Canadian Rockies and also the Karakoram Range in Pakistan. He was named a 2014 National Geographic Adventurer of the Year with a first ascent of K6 RAF, as they call you. Welcome to Mountain Meister. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So Mount Royal University in Canada, I can't imagine that you picked a school that had a mountain on purpose or no? <laughs> no, no, that's that's purely by coincidence. Although the fact that it's in Calgary is very much by design. Calgary being less than an hour away from the Canadian Rockies. Mm-hmm. For, for listeners in the U.S., kind of imagine Denver and the, the Colorado Rockies. Mm-hmm. So I'm within within sight of the mountains, but out on the prairies. So it usually takes me between anywhere between 45 minutes to uh, three or four hours, depending how far I'm going, if I'm going, say, to the Columbia Ice Fields. But most of the climbing I do is within, uh, within an hour or so. And that's manageable with your schedule, right, as a professor? It is. I, um, yeah, kind of, I got to make sure that it is manageable and... Yeah, uh, it helps that I listen to lots of music and podcasts. So I think I know the I know the roads between the city and the mountains pretty much by heart. I, I don't want to. I have driven them in various states of sleep deprivation, so I don't want to put the, too much of a test. But yeah, I know those roads pretty well. Uh, and now that you mentioned podcasts, I have to ask, what podcasts do you listen to? <laughs> well, um, the podcasts I listen to tend to be on the sort of physicsy and science side of things. So, uh, for example, this sort of a classic podcast from uh, CBC Radio, the the Canadian broadcaster, called Quarks and Quarks, uh, about uh, recent developments in science, anything from black holes to uh, 
something like uh, like a mammoth genome. And so uh, actually just last, last night driving back from rock climbing, that's what I was listening to. Very neat. So I, at least from what I've read uh, about you, it seems like people try to really draw this connection or make you out to be this physics professor who like uses his powers to be a crazy good climber. Uh, but I don't know if that's the case for you. Do you do you see this overlap in your academic career and your climbing, or do you see them more as separate entities? Yeah, I think that could be a bit of a forced connection. I mean, one can make up connections between any two things you choose, um, and, and I'm sure there are connections. But but I think it's uh, yeah, as you said, I think it'd be more fair to say that uh, there are just two fairly separate parts of my life. So, yeah, yes, yesterday I was out rock climbing all day and certainly I wasn't thinking about physics. I was thinking about burning forearms. Uh, <laughs> so we're not talking here. I'll, uh, I'll be off to the office and uh, making up a midterm for tomorrow and such. And uh, um, other than maybe procrastinating and daydreaming, climbing will not be foremost on my mind. <laughs> Uh, you did mention that there there is a little overlap. Where where do you see overlap? I think it's maybe even it's less specifically physics, although it certainly helps to understand the uh, the mechanics of an anchor. But I think it's more than anything, it's sort of the rational mindset, and that's not to discount something like a gut instinct, which I think is a you know maybe when subconsciously we're thinking about uh, and integrating a bunch of factors. But at the same time, I think I, I am pretty rational about my decision-making in the mountains, whether it's on a smaller scale and, um, say, trying to assess avalanche hazard and then sort of trying to think, to what extent am I being guided in my thinking about just desire and to what extent am I actually making a rational decision here? So maybe that kind of an approach is where my science comes in. Have there been times where you've looked back on a situation and realized that you made a decision based on emotion rather than using more of a rational approach? For sure. Um, yeah, there's there's definitely been times when I think I, when I really wanted to do something and and maybe I just rationalized the rationalized. Mm-hmm. The risk, and I like to think I've gotten better at that, and that and that I've, after maybe getting uh, burnt a few times and a few close calls, that I uh, that I can sort of maybe separate that those desires from from a, a more objective assessment. Uh, but for sure, yeah, I've had situations where I've been out on the sharp end, and I'm kind of. I'm kind of thinking, boy, this is really not a good situation. I'm climbing into a into a really bad spot here, but I really do do not want to back down. Mm. So how do how do you how do you play that out? How does that play out, especially recently, since you say that you're getting better at it? Well, so uh, about 20 years ago now, I actually took a really bad fall when I was on an alpine climb in the Columbia Ice Fields um, along the Bank Jasper Highway. And conditions on the route were really bad. It was much too warm to be on this mixed climb. The strip of ice we were supposed to be climbing was mush. And I really should have just looked at it and chosen a different line or backed off entirely. And 
I just kind of kept climbing up this thing and climbing and climbing and uh, eventually fell off and fell directly with my uh, with my full came on with my full weight and then some onto onto the belay, which is not something you want to do. Recently, more recently, I've either backed away from situations like these, or maybe more often, rather than backing away, because it's something I still hate doing, I hate going down, I would maybe have a little more discipline to try to find sufficient protection or maybe choose a different line. Um, But yeah, to do things maybe a little more in control. Hmm. More patience, maybe. I think that's, yeah, that's a great word here is that so many times it seems like, well, you, you, you probably, you, you know that you'll probably get away with it. And temptation is to just go for it and the chances are it'll be fine. But yeah, to take the time to make sure that if something does go wrong, that you do have the safety net to catch you. I like it. Evaluating the downside risk. Exactly. And even though the actual risk may be small, the potential consequences are big enough that, uh, that yeah, they should be taken into account. So I'm curious. I went uh, ice climbing this past winter for the first time. We went uh-huh. uh, in the White Mountains, um, kind of near Cathedral Ledge. And I'll be honest, I, <laughs> I don't think it's my thing. Um, and I asked this guide that we had there, I asked him, like, why... Why do you really, really like this, and I don't? Like, why? Why is it? And he, his answer essentially was like, "You have to be crazy to enjoy this stuff." Uh, do you agree with that? You don't seem crazy to me, Raph. But I'm, uh, do you agree with that? Yeah, not com- not completely. I because again, I, I I'd like to think that I'm not crazy in the, in the things I do. Mm-hmm. But you have a point that ice climbing is. Even here in the Canadian Rockies, where it's winter for a good chunk of the year, it's not something that appeals to everyone. And so, for example, yesterday I was out rock climbing and looking at these super talented, super athletic people, just thinking that if if they ever took up ice climbing, Mm. they would just take it by storm. But the thing is, there are actually quite a few obstacles in taking up ice climbing, and I'm not just talking about expensive gear. Uh, Because you're uncomfortable a lot of the time it's cold it's dark when you get up and and it can be kind of boring too because maybe you have to make a long approach and a lot of ice climbing is actually not that hard it's just this kind of repetitive movement um so yeah for me i think i enjoy it for a number of reasons i mean for one thing i found fairly early on that it was something that I was naturally maybe better at than rock climbing. Hmm. So I really enjoy rock climbing, but I find it really hard, whereas ice climbing came more easily to me. And I think we naturally like the things we're decent at. Yes. And um, and also, I think even though it can be kind of boring and repetitive, I think I almost, I think I kind of like that almost meditative state when you're just kind of swinging and kicking your way up a sheet of ice. It's... Uh, there's something neat about that, and there's something neat too about being in these incredible places because you can take the the ice climbing you learn in the White Mountains or in the Canyon Rockies, and you take, can take it to Alaska and the Korokorum, and and to be then doing ice pitches or five or six thousand meters in this incredible environment is um, is quite a high. Yeah, 
And uh, an incredible place you went to uh, about a month ago. We were talking a little bit before the show. You were on Everest this past April uh, during the earthquake. Mm -hmm. You were looking at doing a new route on Everest, correct? Yeah. So, uh, so just to just for the record, on this trip, we never even put our crampons on. Okay. So um, that was so. Yeah. Uh, if we didn't do any climbing on on the trip, um, however. Given we were on the north side of the mountain, uh, and there, other than feeling the, the actual the shaking, the the quake was largely non-event. Uh, no one in and around base camp got hurt. So, given what happened on the south side of Everest and what happened in Nepal in general, we have to consider ourselves very, very lucky. Right. Uh, but yeah, the, the idea of the trip um, was to try to do a new route on the north side of Everest, new route, new variation, because it wasn't independent all the way to the summit, so call it what you will. Um, the idea, most of all, I think, was to just try to climb Everest using a, a fairly light touch. That's what's always attracted me in the mountains is just doing things the way you do them back home in the Rockies. So basically just putting on, putting your pack on and going away for however long it takes. So, I mean, what climbers call Alpine style. So the idea was to kind of take that approach to this new line or new variation on Everest. We talked earlier about staying rational, uh, not letting emotions affect our decision-making. Yet during something like the Nepal earthquake, it's so hard not to let emotions affect us. It's an emotional event. Uh, as a climber, and like you, you can use Everest as an example or any of the other climbs that you've done, uh, when something so tragic like this happens, does it affect your approach at all? I mean, it's, it's like a statistical, it's on the tail end of whatever the statistical probability of something like this happening. So you can't, I guess you can't really let it control your life. Yet when it does happen, it just seems like everything gets so emotional and for good reason. So first of all, again, I have, uh, just to um, explain the situation. So Everest being Everest, it's, um, there's a whole bunch of red tape and bureaucracy that surrounds climbing on Everest, unlike other smaller, less known peaks. And so for us in the end, we did not make the decision about whether to keep climbing right, or not. Right. The, the decision was made for us by the Chinese authorities, the China-Tibet Mountaineering Association, which declared Everest and other big peaks in Tibet like Choyu and Chichapangma declared them closed, uh, largely for safety concerns and partly also because and there are a lot of Sherpas working there on commercial expeditions, largely also to allow the Sherpas to go home. Mm -hmm. uh, so in the end, we did not get to exercise much uh, much decision making. But but certainly in uh, probably the biggest uh, the, the time when when I was really faced with a big decision was two years ago when three of us were in Pakistan. Just four days into our trip, we'd been in the country for four days when the Pakistani Taliban um, went into a climbing base camp, a base camp um, below Nanga Parbat, one of the 8,000 8, meter peaks, 
and executed 11 people, uh, 10 climbers and a, and a local, local cook. And as you can imagine, that came as a, as an immense shock. And our first reaction was we need to get the hell out of here. And that, that was only 70 miles from where you would be. So, uh, in fact, the, it happened just a few hours before uh, we started driving up the Corporal Highway, which would have taken us right past Nanga Parbat. And we got, um, we got word of what happened a couple hours into our drive. And at that point, we had no idea what was happening. We had no idea if this was an isolated attack, if it was the start of some kind of a concerted offensive, a whole lot of uncertainty, and we knew we had to make a decision fairly quickly, um, basically because uh, sort of time was slipping by, and either we're going going to go to the mountains or not. Uh, we didn't have the luxury to uh, to wait a week and let things become clear. Um, so that was a that was a very hard decision, and I think it was a decision maybe where my science scientific background played a bit, bit of a role that. I think that rational thinking in this case overrode my gut reaction, which was to go home. And I started thinking about where we were going, the corner of the mountains where we were going, and realized that it was a, a completely different area with different people, different religion. I'm mean, still Islam, but a completely different branch of Islam. And I realized that where we're going, we would be um, completely safe, or at least I was willing to bet that we would be completely safe. So I feel like when I see these sorts of things or read about them, like these kinds of stories, there are two groups of people. One group is almost glamorizing the situation and like say, wow, you know, like you're pursuing your passion no matter what, like into the danger zone. And then there's another group that's saying, what are you doing? Like you're stupid. Why would you? Why would you do this? There's so much downside risk, and I, I see it a lot in the comments sections of these articles when everybody has a voice. Um, how, how do you feel about that? I think there are issues with both of these takes on the situation. First of all, just by going into those mountains, into big mountains hung with glaciers and whatnot, you're taking a risk. And the the Taliban attack represented another risk on top of that. Uh, granted, it's not a risk that climbers sign up for. Uh, climbers, whether consciously or unconsciously, sign up for the risk of avalanches. So something I thought was that it'd be irrational to accept what I thought was a much, much bigger risk of associated with just going into the mountains mm-hmm. and then let ourselves be turned away by the what I consider to be a much more slight risk of terrorism. Granted, again, it's, uh, and maybe that's where the glamorizing comes in. Uh, I think maybe we tend to find it poetic when people die in the mountains under an avalanche because they die doing what they love. I, I'm not sure if I agree with that because the seconds or minutes of terror, uh, I'm not sure, are <laughs> terribly poetic. And it's also not terribly poetic for the people, for the, for the loved ones back home. Uh, but it is, it's a reality that it's a risk we, that we consider the rewards great enough that we're willing to run those risks 
And so to that extent, I thought that, yeah, it, um, this much smaller risk, it was just another risk on top of that, but it was not a big enough risk for me to sway the balance. Hmm. And maybe it sounds cold irrational, I think, but I think it was. Just to also put it, put our decision in a little more perspective. Uh, so the village that we were starting our trek into base camp from, a village called Hushe, uh, in fact, the one Pakistani who was executed in, uh, by the Taliban came from the village. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he was executed for being of that ethnicity and of that uh, persuasion of Islam. So to some extent, I couldn't imagine in some ways a safer place to be going. Uh, that there was the last place where the Taliban would be welcome. More Mountain Meister coming up in a bit. So are, are you wearing a buff now? At this moment, not this exact moment, but do it's, you, it's about the... I do. Could, oh, I have lots of could them. You, could you go put it on? Right now? Yeah. Okay, hold on. I have to unplug. <laughs> That is Gina Lucrezzi. She's a buff athlete ambassador, an ultra runner, and an ultra cool person. Okay, all set. You got it? <laughs> yeah. It just helps with sound quality. So. Oh, <laughs> right on. Yeah. How, how are you wearing it? Right now, it's just over my hair, around my head. Cool. Just keeping everything out of, my, out of my eyes. I'm wearing mine over my head, too. As you might know, you can wear a buff in a lot of different ways. I actually had never heard of one of the ways that Gina used hers. I actually a lot of times wear an extra one around my wrist, which hmm. is kind of a little different. Um, but I'll tuck um, on the really hot days because right now I'm training for Western States. But if I wrap it around my wrist, I can create like little pockets because I can do a few loops. And I'll put ice cubes in the, um, the, like, hmm. the little loops. It's a major blood source through your wrist. And if you can keep it kind of cool, it helps a little bit. So it's wow. kind of like a little, yeah, a little secret, you know, a little little bonus not anymore it's not a secret <laughs> yeah right on but um for uh, western i'll be freezing a bunch of buffs and keeping them in the cooler and then when i get to the aid stations with my crew i'll be putting them around my neck and to hopefully cool things down so you can do so many things with them which is really nice you can get super creative but um that's why it's a vital piece of gear for at least my my gear kit to get a buffer however you want to use it Go to buffusa.com, use the code MEISTER, M-E-I-S-T-E-R at checkout, and you'll get 15% off of your entire purchase. Thanks, Gina, for joining us. And now, back to the show. You have a physics career, you have this really esteemed climbing career, you also have a wife. Uh, I've heard you say that it, it can be frustrating sometimes trying to balance everything, uh, and maybe you can't always commit everything that you would want to each of those things. Is that true, or do you feel that only at sometimes? No, that's uh, it is true, and fortunately, it's not something that uh, that I struggle with all the time because that would be unbearable. Uh, but yeah, it is something that maybe when I wake up at four in the morning, can get back to sleep, that I think about that. Um, that, yeah, I've never that I never actually never actually fully committed to any of those things, um, and especially here I'm talking about about uh, climbing versus academic career, and uh, and I wonder sometimes 
whether I'm not living up to some kind of a potential by doing that. At the same time, I think most of the, most of the time, I do appreciate the, the variety that this gives my life. And yeah, and, and, then, and then, of course, being married is yet another, obviously, huge part of my life. And there's a balancing act between uh, physics and climbing. There's obviously a balancing act uh, happening in uh, being married as well. That, uh, unfortunately, my wife is, uh, who's not, she's not a climber, but she is very patient and understanding and appreciates that climbing, even though it's something she worries about, especially um, when I go off on these big expeditions, she appreciates that it's something that means a great deal to me and is willing to put up with it. Yeah. So a lot of us have to balance certain things in our lives, uh, maybe not to this magnitude, um, but what what helps you? Again, maybe um, being somewhat rational about it mm-hmm. and realizing that if all of our lives involve decisions and compromises and paths not taken. And if we agonize endlessly over, over these uh, forks in the road and wonder what would happen if I'd taken the other fork, that's, in the end, that's not very productive. And sometimes it's hard to stop yourself from doing that, but in the end, I, 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 try to, I still try to do that. I try to stop myself and, and say that, well, those are the decisions you made. Live with them, and if you're truly unhappy about them, do something to, to change it. But, um, but I made those decisions. So, for example, the decision to, to some extent, compromise and, uh, and maybe uh, scale back my scientific and academic ambitions in favor of a lifestyle that would allow me to spend a lot of time in the mountains, it's, a, it's not a decision I made by accident. It's a decision I made with my eyes wide open. And... Most of the time, I'm happy with that decision, and I should live with it. Let's changing gears to your gear recommendation. Uh-huh. I was telling you before, you can make it a down jacket if you want, uh, but we've had <laughs> a lot of them already. <laughs> Give our listeners something, maybe one or two things that they should check out. Well, so this is not terribly glamorous, because I'm going to name a pair of pants. Ooh. So it's it's something pretty lowly, but um, but yeah, just most I would say ninety percent of the time when I'm going to the mountains, I'm wearing pretty much the same pair of soft shell pants. Sort of again, nothing nothing trivy fancy, just this straightforward pair of soft shell pants that if it's warm I wear on their own. If it's cold I layer one, sometimes even two pairs of long jumps underneath. Um, the thing I like about um, pants like these is that, for one thing, they're not as sweaty as hard shell. Uh, and what I like, too, about uh, pants that don't have any insulation on their own is that they give you this flexibility to layer stuff. And also stuff, uh, a lot of the fabrics that have this built-in insulation, some kind of fuzz on the inside... I find don't dry very well. I've had friends who got new hypothermic because they wear they, they wore what seemed like a good idea at the beginning of the of the day, uh, but then they kind of got wet from wallowing in snow and never dry. Whereas I find sort of these 
fairly straightforward uh, pants made of fabric like shoulder. Uh, even when they get wet, uh, half an hour later with a bit of sun or wind or just body heat are dry again. Um, they're super tough. And yeah, eventually when they get all fuzzy, you have to replace them because they start soaking up water. But of any piece of gear, that's probably the one piece of gear I get the most mileage out of. What kind of soft shell pants are these? You didn't drop the brand name. So, uh, well, I was, I was a little hesitant here because, uh, again, for full disclosure, I am sponsored by Arcterics. Oh, we don't mind if you're sponsored. <laughs> uh, these are Arcterics Gamma AR pads. So, again, just kind of very down-to-earth, sort of fairly heavy-duty uh, soft shell pants, Gamma AR, like a lot of Arcterics stuff. The different lines are uh, named with Greek letters. A lot of people find it confusing, maybe being a physicist where we use the Greek alphabet all the time. Uh, I find it actually pretty straightforward. <laughs> so do the do the letters make sense? Do the letters in the Greek alphabet make sense for the clothing that they are assigned to? Yeah. So, for example, the gamma line is a particular kind of soft shell, whereas the alpha line tends to tends to be uh, hard shell. Okay. So right. after after you've seen it for a while, it begins to make a certain kind of sense. But yeah, at first, I think people find it a bit uh, bit abstract. Those pants on Raf's Meister profile page on our website, mtnmeister.com. Uh, Final question for you today is, who would you like to hear as the next person on this show? Let's say I was going to have a conversation similar to this one with somebody. Who should it be? Well, there are a number of people who come to mind, but I think one person that certainly has had a huge influence on me and that I think your listeners also might enjoy listening to is a guy by the name of Steve Swenson. And you may have spoken with Steve already. Not yet. Uh, So, uh, I mean, we're we're, we're to start about Steve. So uh, in his former life, Steve was an engineer. Uh, He has since taken early retirement and is doing a lot of things, including a lot of climbing. Uh, He's a former uh, president of the American Alpine Club. And I've known Steve for a dozen years now. Um, Steve actually was my in to Pakistan, my very first trip to Pakistan. I went with Steve, and I'm not sure if there's another climber or alpinist on this continent who has been to Pakistan as often or has been going as long as Steve. Steve knows Pakistan probably better than any North American climber. So this was an amazing opportunity to go to Pakistan on my first trip with someone like that. Um, but the thing I, one of the things I really admire about Steve among, among many is that, again, he seems to be able to strike this balance between until recently, a very demanding professional career, a family, a wife, and two kids, and climbing at really the highest standards out there. Um, so he's a recipient of the Pyoledog, the Golden Ice Axe, for a first ascent in the Indian Korakoram. He has climbed K2 and Everest without oxygen, um, has this career just spanning many decades. And the other thing that I really enjoy about Steve is that he has recently turned 60, is one of the fittest people I know, and more than anything, he just 
and still enjoys climbing like a kid. He just loves being out there and loves going up climbing. And I, that's something I aspire to as well. Very good. Listeners, keep an ear out for Steve Swenson on a future episode. Oh, I forgot to ask you, Dr. Raff. Rate my professor. I, when, I Googled, <laughs> when I Googled your name, uh, rate my professor came up, and I used this all the time in college to pick my classes. Uh-huh. Uh, so I know what it's like from a student's perspective. Uh, what do you think of rate my professor? Um, I have to admit that I haven't been to see my profile in a while. So maybe after we uh, end our conversation, I'll, I'll, that'll be the first thing I do out of sheer morbid curiosity. It's good. Uh, your, your recent reviews are very good. I like the, I like the early ones, which, which maybe fair enough, maybe sort of reflects um, so a professional growth and an improvement as a professor, which uh, one, one likes to think will happen. I th- maybe, maybe it has, maybe this tool for the listeners, this tool is essentially students go on and uh, fill out a rating for their college professor. I mean, you, you said like your ratings are so much better now. It seems like there was this turning point in like 2006, 2007, where you just became this legendary professor. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think part of it might've been that uh, I started teaching at my university in 2003 and I came from a background as a graduate student and Mm -hmm. postdoctoral research fellow um, where um, I was not used to dealing with uh, beginning undergraduates. And to this day, I actually find teaching uh, more advanced courses quite a lot easier because there's just, you, you can assume so much more, so much more background, so much more already knowledge and understanding. The hardest courses to teach are the truly introductory ones where students really come in with nothing. Interesting. And I think maybe that was the issue to begin with, that I couldn't quite understand why the students were having so much trouble. Very, uh, that <laughs> But anyway, of... yeah, no, to answer your question, it, it can be rewarding. It can be kind of daunting sometimes going to rate my professor because, um, you know, as much as you tell yourself that, oh, maybe this is a biased sample and all that and only people who truly hate you will go on there and write something, um, I find I have a hard time not taking it seriously. So I, yeah. I definitely do take it to heart. Exactly. I, I feel you. I have iTunes ratings for the podcast. Uh, I bet you restaurants feel the same way about Yelp sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, these, yeah, these public ratings are, are give you kind of a new perspective or a new appreciation. So, yeah. Anyway, thanks so much for joining us today. One, a great conversation. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. For the listeners, you can see more on Raphael's Meister profile page on our website, mtnmeister.com. We'll have extra links, a quote, some pictures, and more. Thanks, Raph. Thank you. Meister fans, hope you enjoyed that episode with Raph Slavinsky, Dr. Raph, physics professor, alpinist, husband and master of balancing time. Thanks, Raph, for joining. You can check out Raph's Meister profile page for extra links and highlights of today's episode. Also, while you're there, go ahead and click on that link to get a free audiobook from us. We get paid when you do that, so it helps us out. 
You can also leave us a review on iTunes, which is equally free for you, and it helps us out a lot too. And if you want to spend a lot of money by supporting Mountain Meister, our support page has a lot of options for you to do just that. Thank you all for your continued support. It honestly it wouldn't be possible without you. As always, enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do while you listen to my voice. My name is Ben Shank, and you've been listening to a podcast called Mountain Meister. <laughs> <laughs>